You may be seated. Amen. Take your Bibles this morning. Turn to Psalm 81. It was not my text until Zach read it this morning, and it speaks exactly to what we are going to be preaching on today. You'll put a finger, if you will, in Genesis 35, but I think the sum total of what we're going to look at across the message this morning is encapsulated in verses 11, 12, and 13 of Psalm 81. We're talking about our Walking with God series, and Jacob in particular. As we come to Jacob's finish today, that's where we will be studying. Jacob's walk with God is significant, but it was fraught with mistakes. I dare say that most of us, as we look at Jacob and his life as one of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, as we look at them as one of the patriarchs, we note or can understand that we find ourselves in him. Sometimes when we try to compare ourselves to Abraham, we think, man, I don't think I could be like Father Abraham and his faith. But when we look at Jacob's life and the mess that it is, we kind of say, yeah, I, I get it. I can see myself in Jacob. But may I submit to you this morning, none of us want the finish that Jacob had. Yeah. It was tragic. It was terrible. It was filled with failure and consequences, and we'll see that even this morning. We'll look at here in Psalm 81, and God is speaking to Israel, the people, but make no mistake, the Israel, the people, were the product of Israel, Jacob, the man himself. And we pick up our reading where we read in our time of worship earlier and read in verse 11, but my people would not hearken to my voice. And Israel would none of me. In other words, he'd have nothing to do with me. So I gave them up under their own heart's lusts, and they walked in their own counsels. How tragic it is for many a Christian to do that. Verse 13, oh, that my people had hearkened unto me. This is God's plea. This is God's desire. This is what God wants for those who say they're Christians, that we would listen to him. And Israel had walked in my ways. Father, help us, I pray, as we come now to the word of God. The reason we gather... Worship is in song, but worship is ascribing to you the worth that is deserved. And that is most appropriately done from your book, for it teaches us how high and lifted up you are and how far short we fall. Help us, I pray, this morning as we come to these truths about this man, Jacob. A patriarch, yes. A man of faith, yes. A man who was to be transformed, yes, but one who often failed. Help us to see these failures today in his finish. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We've noted that in Jacob's walk with God, it was a walk of transformation. By the way, God will not force his life into us. He offers his life to us and we must receive it by faith. But once we receive that gracious gift of His life, He will enable us to, live with, to then live within His grace and by His power. Jacob's formation was our first message. His fight was our second message. His faith was our third message in this man. And now we have come to a concluding thought, and that is this. If the transformation was going to take, the end of his life should show fruit of it. And Jacob's really doesn't. I would dare you this morning to look into the mirror of God's word and find your own life in Jacob's. For often we think we're okay with God. We're just doing fine. And there's disaster just around the corner. We're to live a life of transformation. Jacob should have lived Romans 12, 1 and 2. The Bible there says this, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy acceptable unto God. Why? Because it's your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may, or the result, the net effect of that, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So we come this morning to Jacob's finish. 
If he had chosen to fight faithfully and consistently every day, then his finish would have been a lot prettier than what we're going to study this morning. A little passing thought about scriptural hermeneutics. I always like to be a bit of a nerd for you, so you're welcome. Genesis is a book of summaries. Genesis 1, a general description of how God created. Genesis 2, how He specifically created man. We understand that concept then in studying the book of Genesis. And what we find when it comes to the patriarchs, that there is a process where he describes the life of Abraham, but before telling us Abraham died, he begins to tell us the life of Isaac. And then pigeonholed in the life of Isaac is the fact that Abraham died. And then we have the life of Isaac coming to a conclusion, and the life of Jacob and Esau, and Jacob particularly, takes off. And at the end of Jacob's life, it's pigeonholed in that Isaac dies. So it is with Jacob. We come to Genesis 35, if you'll go back there with me, and we'll begin our study this morning. For if we are going to understand the finish of a man like Jacob, and something that we want to avoid is the kind of finish he had, then we've got to see how it finished In God's eyes. Genesis chapter 35 really is the last comprehensive statement on the life of Jacob that we find. Beginning in chapter number 36, there are the descendants of Esau. In chapter 37, then we move into the life of Joseph. Oh, we'll draw some lessons from those stories this morning. But Jacob's finish follows the patriarchs before him. By the time we come to Genesis 35, his story and his walk with God is winding down. So what is the best way to finish your Christian sojourn? What kind of life do you want to be remembered for? You know, for the younger in here, it's kind of at the front end of it. I don't even know what kind of life I want to have, Kyle. I get that. But for those of us that are in our... 20s, not me, 30s, not me, 40s, hey, that's me, 50s, 60s, and 70s, we start to look at about the time kids come along, what kind of life do I want to have? Who am I? What do I want to be remembered for? Unfortunately, when we get to chapter 35, God gives Jacob, a a man of faith, one last chance to have a life of transformation. And we see in that, once again, there is a failure. God can change you, my friend. God wants to change you, but God will not force you to change. He will merely provide you the opportunities and correction to bring you back into a right walk with Him. That is the lesson to be drawn from Jacob's finish this morning. Loving and serving God is a choice that we must consciously make. Jacob's finish can be summarized in two broad statements. The first broad statement is this. In life, we experience relational failure. That relational failure is failure to God and failure towards our fellow man. Maybe it's a husband to a wife. Maybe it's a parent to a child or children to their parents. Maybe it's siblings. Maybe it's within the community. But the point is, in this life, we experience, when we walk away from God, failures in relationships. There's no relationship that can be had in honest accord with another person without a first a relationship with God. And every time we read of Jacob, we read him leaving Bethel, it's a problem. When he comes back to Bethel, man, everything's right with rain. But every time he leaves Bethel, there's problems in his life. Bethel is called the dwelling of God. It's where God dwells. In other words, it's where God resides. When you stick close to God, boy, there's a lot of hope for you. When you walk away from God, Good luck to you. That's what God says. Jacob betrayed his faith on and off throughout his whole life. God had declared that he was the one who would receive the birthright before he was ever born. Jacob should have steadfastly trusted in his early years that God would provide what he said. He lacked faith and instead he trusted the arm of flesh or his own family. You say, well, pastor, it was supposed to work out this way so that we might learn the lesson. No, the only lesson any of us needs to learn from the life of Jacob is trust God, let him provide and don't live like he did. You're knocking on a patriarch. Can I tell you something? God exposes the life of failure. That is not to say that God did not use Jacob. I'm being very careful to say the right words this morning. But I want you to understand that 
in our study today, you must understand in your own life where you might have failed, where relationally to God you have failed, and where relationally to one another you have failed. Particularly the message this morning will be very pointed to many parents in here as we look towards our own children. We find Jacob rediscovering how to walk with God in Genesis 35, and it leads us to letter A. The relational failure shows us that there is a needed change that must take place. The sinful flesh caused a lot of problems for Jacob with others, and he regularly had to come back to the point where, man, this cannot continue. I've got to change. There's got to be something different. There's got to be something better. There's got to be something more to this life than the chaos that is all around me. And that is true. We find he rediscovers how to walk in Genesis 35. In verses 1 through 15, we could break it down into three thoughts of change. The needed change, number one, is that he had to walk in truth as opposed uh, to his own ways of lying. He had to walk in truth. Verses 1 through 4, let's read them together here in Genesis 35. The Bible says, And God said unto Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel. Now let's pause for a second and put a reminder in our heads. Last chapter, we left Jacob in Genesis 34 with Levi and Simeon exacting revenge upon the men of Shechem for the violation they committed against their sister, Dinah, who Jacob did nothing to help. And Levi and Simeon go out, and after getting them all to uh, take in a ritual rite that would physically impair them, on the second day, they go in and they murder every one of them. That's where we're coming out of. Hollywood's got nothing on the Bible. We're going to find that out in even more detail, more terrible, tragic detail in Genesis 38. But this is where Jacob is in his failure. He's not protecting his daughter. He's not even providing the leadership for his sons. His family is in chaos. There's nothing but a wreck all around him. And God says to him, hey, get up. By the way, sometimes in a church service, the pastor preaching might be God's voice saying to you, wake up, arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make there an altar unto God that appeared unto thee when thou fleddest from the face of Esau thy brother. Then Jacob said unto his household and to all that were with him, put away the strange gods that are among you and be clean and change your garments. We heard that in the psalm this morning in Psalm 81 verses 8 and 9 that if they had just put away their strange god, gods, God could have worked in their life. Here he is doing that. Verse 3, and let us arise and go up to Bethel, and I will make there an altar unto God, who answered me in the day of my distress, and was with me in the way in which I went. And they gave unto Jacob all the strange gods which were in their hands, and all their earrings which were in their ears, and Jacob hid them, or buried them. They were dead to him under the oak which was by Shechem. In Genesis 35 and verse 1, Jacob is told to return to a place of divine truth, the place where God dwelt. God had appeared to Jacob there, and Jacob had known it. The story that unfolds in that passage where Bethel is in Genesis 28 is the ladder that goes into heaven, and there Jacob sees God high and lifted up. He sees himself here. He sees the ministering angels coming in between, and it's the first time that God makes a promise to him. It's where his faith began. And what God is telling him is that if you have failed, Jacob, in your failure, get over your failure by coming back to the place where you met me. May I say to you, believer, that means coming back to the foot of the cross. Realizing that you are a sinner saved by grace. Whatever the relationship failure you have with your parents, with your kids, with your brothers or sisters, with someone in the community, perhaps within even the church, whatever failures you have and have experienced, they can be solved by you coming back and living in the truth. Walking in the truth. With Isaac, with Esau, with Laban, with Leah, with Rachel, with Dinah, with Levi, with Simeon, with everyone that Jacob had to do, he had failed time and time again in right relationships. He was, after all, the supplanter. Yes, he had made strides since meeting God, but he still struggled with doing what was right, doing what was truth. So God calls Jacob here to return to where he dwells in truth. 
That is where we find health and help in our Christian life. It is where we find our spiritual vitality and liveliness. God tells him to dwell there. Look in verse uh, 1 in the middle part of it. He says, and dwell there. That means stay there. Now, I'm not saying this morning, come to church and just stay here. That's not what I'm preaching. What I'm saying is, where does God abide? God abides inside the believer's heart, but it's in this book. Come here and dwell here. Find the truth and walk in it. That's what God wants from you. It's all that God desires for you. Dwell in the place that I have revealed myself to you, God says. The effect of walking in truth is that it will cleanse your life. Verses 2, 3, and 4 tell us the cleansing effect. Notice what the Bible says. Then Jacob said unto his household and to all that were with him, Put away the strange gods that are among you and be clean and change your garments. You know, dads, I wonder if in your homes you just lived by the truth and in the truth, how much your kids would begin to listen and put away the things that are of the filth of this generation. By the way, my parents struggle with the same thing. Little Kyle was no different than Big Kyle. Sometimes I watch my three boys and I realize, whew, God bless my parents for the line that they held. (laughs) Because it's a hard line to hold, to walk in truth. But may I say, it's worth it. Well, I don't even know what truth is. Come back to the book. Come back to counselors who can help you in the book. Here's the point. When a dad and when a mom, when an individual is willing to walk in truth, they will impact the world around them. The needed change in the relational failures is that they could no longer walk in the lies that he believed of his own flesh, but he had to come back and walk in the truth where God himself dwelt. Walking in truth will correct our failures so that we may secondly walk in triumph. Verse number five. Remember the psalmist's words from the beginning. Oh, that Israel would walk in my ways. That's all God desires for us. It's what God wants from us. Verse 5, they journeyed and the terror of God was upon the cities. Now that's an interesting phrase. It's not the terror of Jacob. It's not the terror of his sons. It's the terror of God, the fear of God. Literally, the awe-inspiring presence of God was upon Jacob. Can I suggest to you that Jacob wasn't necessarily a holy guy right here? He was coming back to a place where he wanted to live holy for God, where his life would show the transformation that had taken place. He was working his way back there. And in that process of coming back to truth, God says, that action by faith, I will protect. You will be victorious in this effort as you trust in me. Our salvation saves us from what the enemy might do to us, we could say. Paul said this to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 2 and verse 14. Now, thanks be unto God, which always causeth us to triumph. How? In Christ. And maketh manifest or maketh obvious the savor or the impact, the, the placement and flavoring, we might say, of his knowledge. By us where? In every place. Everywhere that Jacob and his family were walking, this verse was absolutely true. They were triumphing as they went back from Shechem to Bethel. And as they went, everybody around said, man, don't touch that family. That's the family of God. Don't touch that guy. He's walking with God. That God protects that guy. I can't tell you why, but that's what he does. When you're walking in the word of God and you're living righteously before God, there is a protection, a divine protection upon you. Jacob's return was called, was God called, thus it was God enabled. By the way, if you try to restore failed relationships in your own flesh, if you try to correct mistakes in your own power, you will fail. It'll just be failure upon failure. What Jacob did here is not try to remedy in his own power the problem that his family had caused and that his own lack of faith had brought about, but rather he says, okay, God, I give up. I recognize my failure. I know there's a need for a change. I'm going to go and walk in truth, but in that truth, you're going to have to provide, and God will. By the way, these enemies were those around Shechem who wanted Jacob and his family dead for what they did to the men of that city. Yet God provided protection, not because they were not evil, they were evil, but because of Jacob's faith and desire to follow God. When God burdens your heart because of sin, 
because of the failures in your own life? Listen. Obey. Return to the place of salvation. It is there that you can quote what Paul said to the Romans in Romans 8, that we are more than conquerors through him that loved us so. Relational failures first need to have a recognition or an understanding that there is a needed change. It's a walk in truth, it's a walk in triumph, and third, it's a walk in trust. In verses 6 through 15, we've studied this in great detail two sermons ago in the life of Jacob during the message on his fight. And we talked about the drink offering being poured out. It's a wonderful picture that is given to us in verse 14 where the drink offering, he pours out thereupon and he poured the oil thereon. The idea is that Christ himself was our drink offering on the cross of Calvary. The Bible says in John 19 that when the spear went in, the blood and the water flowed out of the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. That was him pouring himself out to save you. In return, we are to take our lives and make it a drink offering poured out as a memorial to Him. Romans 12, 1 and 2, the verse that we started with this morning. As we understand that then, today, I don't want you to see the drink offering per se. I want you to see the trust that Jacob gives. Back in Genesis chapter 28 and verse 22, the Bible makes this statement. Now, it's within the context of that Jacob's latter event as well. Here's what Jacob says in verse 22. And this stone, which I have set for a pillar, shall be God's house. Does God dwell in a stone? The answer is no. But he lives in a bunch of uh, hard-headed people like us. (laughs) But the answer is no, he didn't live in the stone. The point he was saying is, this is where I met God. This is where I know God is. And of all that thou shalt give me, I will surely give the tenth unto thee. In Genesis 28, 22, Jacob had established a pillar and a promise in his worship back to God. But now at Bethel, he builds an altar, according to verse number 7. We pick up our reading, if you look up there in Genesis 35, it says, He built there an altar and called the place El Bethel. They keep seeming to throw more modifiers on the name Bethel here, right? Beth means house, El means God, house or dwelling of God, but he adds an L to the front in the Hebrew. He literally says, God of the house of God. That's what it's called. The word altar or the idea of an altar in verse number seven represents a place of consecration for an individual. There was an altar at the gate of Eden. There was an altar built by Noah when he departed from the ark. There was an altar built by Abraham at the top of Mount Moriah. Notice that modifier that is used in chapter 35 and verse 7, El Bethel. It means the God of the house of God. His trust was no longer in a place. There's a lot of Christians that will say, I trust my church. Can I suggest to you, you should never trust your church. Man, you're a dummy. You're the pastor of this church. What do you mean by that? You trust the God of a good church. I'll give you an example. I got a phone call on Wednesday. guy's name was Victor. Victor, if you're here, I'd love to meet you after church. For seven minutes without breathing, Victor lit into me about the 107 churches that were called while he was laid up in the VA, and the pastors and the priests, none of them would come visit him. And he found our number. I wish I had named us like Zion Baptist so we would be down at the end of the phone book. But at Bluegrass Baptist, we were up towards the top. And for seven minutes, I heard his vitriol and his anger. And it's a sad story. My heart broke for him on the phone. His wife and his daughter were killed in the candle factory down in Mayfield, Kentucky. And since then, no church has reached out to try to help young Victor or older Victor. And so for seven minutes as a pastor, I listened to how terrible we are and what we do wrong and all these things and how churches have hurt him. And I have no doubt that that is true. He was trusting in the dwelling of God rather than in the God of the dwelling of God. Eleven minutes later, after about six words that I was able to get in at all, he hung up on me without hearing my response. Luckily for a caller ID, I dialed him right back up. I said, Victor, I'm sorry. I don't want to talk to you. Three minutes later, hung up again without me getting in a word. 
So I called him again. Third time he went right to voicemail and I said, Victor, I understand churches have failed you. If I would this morning, I'm sure many of us could raise our hand and say, yes, I've been a part of a church before where the pastor or someone or somebody in that place has failed me. Can I tell you, he gives the modifier here, El Bethel, because it's not about your church. It's not about your religion. It's about the trust you have in the God of the universe. That's all that matters. My heart still breaks for Victor. I do hope that he will call back. I've warned the church staff that if he calls back, just tell him, wait, let me get Kyle. I don't know if I'll ever be able to help that man. I hope I can. But it was very timely this week, unfortunate in his life and circumstances, that this is the point or the message that God wants to get across to us. Whatever your relationship failures with God or with others are, the needed change in your life to right and remedy those failures is to come back and walk in truth. It is only there that you will be able to walk in triumph. And to stay there, you must walk in trust. You must trust the God, not the place, not the religion, not the creed, but the God, the God himself who provides for you. Relational failures require for us to biblically return to God. It is a needed change. But we can also clearly see in the life of Jacob, letter B, the nagging consequences. Wouldn't it be great if life could be lived without consequences? Every time my boys come in, I kind of wish, I'm glad for all three of my boys, but I kind of wish at some point we had gotten a girl to mix it up a little bit. I don't know, maybe she had been as mean as a snake like they are, I don't know. But they come in with a bonk on their head or a cut on their arm or, you know, whatever. And I keep saying to them, well, you climbed the tree, you rode the bike, you jumped out of the... What do you expect? When you do this, this is the result. And every time my kids come, I think that's one of the joys of parenting. And young people, teenagers and below, just keep this as a mental note, file it away. Your parents somewhere on the inside, even if they're very mad in the moment, are somewhere deep within smiling going, life has consequences. Some of the choices that we made as kids are still affecting us today. We rented the... Uh, what is the Super Mario movie? Or we bought it the other day. I don't know if it's good or not, but I tell you this, there's a song that was playing on it, and as soon as it came on, it reminded me of my days when I was walking far from God. Like that. Luckily, it was just for a second, and my boys looked at me, and I could just see hair bands and guitars and the late 80s and early 90s. I'm like, oh, man, oh, man, wait a second. Consequences. Jacob's life is filled with nagging consequences. Chapter 35, at the very end of his life, or the end at culminating thoughts on his life, God says he had to have a needed change. But the consequence for Jacob is that he kept leaving where God was. It's not a good idea. There's nothing but failure outside of God. I've often been asked from the repentant or reformed sinner myself often being chief among them. Pastor, what do you think the consequences for my sin will be? I don't know. I do wish that I had like the magic eight ball that I could shake and then it would come up and say the consequences will be you lose $5,000. Wait, I wish I had an answer like that. I don't know what the consequences of your sin will be. God does. And the life of Jacob plays out for us. It is written for our learning, according to Romans 15, verse 4, so that we might understand that life in faith, not lived for God, will bring consequences. And often, many of our Christian homes today feel the very same consequences that Jacob felt. Jacob's deceitful lifestyle reaped disastrous consequences, even though his life was supposedly transformed. How many a Christian, even in this room this morning, could say that? By the way, Galatians 6-7 is always true. It's always true. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he what? Also reap. You sow to the flesh, you reap of the flesh. You sow the wind, you reap the whirlwind, the Bible says. 
Meaning it's out of your control, the consequences at that point. If you had just walked and lived by faith and not in the flesh, the consequences would be God's blessing and God's grace fully poured out on you. But when you leave and live in the flesh and fail in your relationships as Jacob did, consequences are out of your control. First in your notes, there is defiance. Levi, Simeon, Judah, and Reuben seem to be the influential four brothers of the twelve. We could note that Joseph was the ultimate fifth of those influential brothers, but not to the brothers themselves. He was just influential to the whole world. In Genesis 34 and in Genesis 37, the brothers, those four, come to embody the defiance of those that we love before whom we live an inconsistent life of faith. Hear me out. Listen very carefully. Listen to what I just said. They come to embody the defiance of our teenage kids, moms and dads, when we live inconsistently in our faith. That's what it says. Each time we find him failing in his relationship to God and his relationship to a human being, there is a consequence and it falls out to defiance or a defiant spirit in those children that God gave to him. Yes, because of salvation, we are different. But your choices in the present and in the past must be addressed. The failures that you have must be forgiven. When Dinah was attacked in Genesis 34, Levi and Simeon defied any direction from their father and murdered the perpetrators. Jacob's name was sullied partly because of his inaction and partly because of their defiant action. Here's what the Bible says. Here's his commentary in Genesis 34 and in verse 30. And Jacob said to Simeon and to Levi, Ye have troubled me to make me stink among the inhabitants of the land. He said, You boys have made me smell bad. You've made me look bad. How many Christian parents, don't raise your hand, please, this morning, have said to a point, maybe even to your kids, you've said, Don't embarrass me exactly what he's saying here. You've embarrassed me. Not only have they embarrassed him, they've endangered him. I being few in number, they shall gather themselves together against me and slay me, and I shall be destroyed. I and my house. What is wrong with you kids? Might be Jacob's words. Inconsistency on the part of parents yields a consequence of defiance in the young person's life. By the way, let me just put this aside. I'm going to go ahead and put the silver lining in here because I can see some downer looks. I don't mean that. I'm I'm a pastor. I have to preach the truth, right? And if it hurts, it hurts. That means make a change. But here's the silver lining. Your kid still can't turn out great. Joseph did, right? There's hope. That's why Joseph follows Jacob and the patriarchs. God has it on purpose. By the way, some of the terrible chapters, one of the worst chapters in all the Bible is Genesis 38, And we're going to cover it this morning very softly. But it is sandwiched between them selling Joseph and Joseph saying no to Mrs. Potiphar. We'll study it in Joseph's life. But it's a great contrast to how kids end up because of the inconsistencies, but how God can work even in a child's life if they will overcome the father or the mother's inconsistencies. There's hope. Jacob's statement on their portrayal could be found in the mouths of modern Christian parents, could it not? You've made me vile and vulnerable to my enemies. We're supposed to be a Christian home. (laughs) Many a double-minded, halting, fleshly Christian parent has experienced this truth in their own children. If you do not live consistent Christianity before the eyes of your kids, defiance is the natural outflow. That is the lesson to be learned from Jacob. In Genesis chapter 37, interestingly enough, in the defiance aspect... Defiance reaches a fevered pitch. Jacob assumes that the boys are back at Shechem feeding the sheep. If you were to read Genesis 37 and verse 13, he says to Joseph effectively, hey, go find your brothers at Shechem. It seems like they like to hang out at Shechem. It was an awful place. But they kept finding their way back there. Now Joseph goes to look for them, and they're not there. Dad's assumption is wrong. They're actually in Dothan. Doesn't mean they weren't there before. Or that they didn't have a predilection to going back to that awful place. But Shechem was the very city where Levi and Simeon had betrayed their father's trust. 
Joseph, Jacob's favorite son, comes to bring refreshment to his brothers. His dreams a nuisance to their very soul. In verse 19 of chapter 37, it says, They said one to another, Behold, the dreamer cometh. Here comes that jerk. By the way, when you have raised your kids in inconsistency, they will think the messengers of God are a jerk. They'll laugh at him. They'll mock him. Don't be shocked. Oh, I didn't think my kid would say that, Pastor. I'm never shocked. I used to be one of those kids. Thankfully, my parents rode me like a mule <laughs> and disciplined me well and drove that defiance far from me. Their defiance leads to Joseph being sold into slavery, a symbolism of Christ being sold under sin for the race of mankind. The first nagging consequence is defiance. The second is there's deception. Teenagers, I hope I'm not preaching right to you this morning. I'm going to be in with the senior high tonight while Chris is teaching in here. I get to go out with them. I'm going to preach to them or teach to them tonight. Ecclesiastes 9, verse 14, the little city. So, young people, you can read it this afternoon and come tonight with loads of questions. There's a poor little wise man that saves the city. And so often we say no to the little inner light that is the Holy Spirit who's willing and wanting to save our city, save our soul from the mistakes that we make. Here we find that there is deception. The only worst betrayal that has ever been, been enacted on another individual is upon Jesus Christ in his innocence than on Joseph. Joseph had done nothing but share with them what God had revealed to them in his dreams. Jacob had received many visions of God in his own life, and that's why the Bible says in Genesis thirty-seven eleven, his brethren envied Joseph. But his father observed his saying, in this day, the only way that they knew God was speaking was through a dream or a vision. In verse number 10 of chapter 37, Jacob actually rebukes Joseph for his vision. But then in verse 11, it says he observed him. You can see the inconsistencies. Can you imagine the deception of these brothers to their dad? If you follow the Bible chronology, it is probably 40 years, four decades of lying to Jacob saying Joseph is dead. Man, that's a long time. Those guys were jerks. Now, once they sold him into slavery, he was as good as dead to them. So in a way, the lie became truth, right? Isn't that how we do it sometimes? Well, I mean, I wasn't really lying. I just didn't tell everything exactly right. He's dead to me because he's now a slave. Wow, that's so much better. Thanks for saying it that way. Can you imagine lying for that long? Maybe some of you have. Maybe some of you still are. For Jacob, the consequence of his own personal failures in relation to his boys is that they seemingly kept up appearances for an awfully long time. By the way, once you start telling a lie, young people, it's hard to start telling the truth. Jacob could freely deceive others, so it should not have been a surprise that his sons could so freely deceive him. The nagging consequences for Jacob include defiance, deception, and finally, there's disaster. From Reuben, if you were to stay here in Genesis 35 and look over in verse 21, you pick up the reading and it says, Israel journeyed and spread his tent beyond the Tower of Edar. I have written in the margin of my Bible, really a deep statement. You can write it there too. Dummy. Is it ever a good idea to go outside of what God has called you to? No. But, you know, there's probably better grazing there. Okay, you're rationalizing again. You're not walking by, by faith. Verse 22, And it came to pass when Israel dwelt in the land that Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine. What? That's disastrous, I can tell you that. It's disgusting too. How did Reuben do this? Well, early in Reuben's life, his mandrakes, if you go back and study, were seemingly a prized possession. Wanted and coveted by all. They were used as an exchange by his mother Leah to gain an advantage with Jacob over Rachel, the favorite. 
It would seem that at that very moment, Reuben lost respect for both his father and his mother. They were nothing to him. The defiance led to deception, which ultimately brings about disaster. Moms and dads of young and old children in here this morning. If this is the path and pattern your kids are on, then I think you need to go back to point A and see the need for change. Reuben's double-mindedness with Joseph in Genesis 37, not wanting him to die, but not wanting them freeing from the pit. That's always been an interesting study for me. Hey, man, I don't want you dead, but I do want you living in that pit for the rest of your life. Thanks, brother. I appreciate you, Joseph might have said. Reuben comes back and is surprised that his brothers hatched the idea of selling Joseph into slavery. Reuben is a disaster of a young man. And at the end of his life, when Jacob is handing out the blessings, he says, you're unstable as water. In other words, you're only going to flow down to the path of least resistance. We live in a country filled with kids who only take the easy way out. That's all we live in. By the way, they've learned it from their parents because their parents as kids and growing into adults have only taken the path of least resistance. That's what it means to be double-minded. You're unstable as water. You're just flowing everywhere that culture takes you. Judah's disaster was worse in Genesis 38. I won't read it in the company of good ears. It's kind of like I've never preached from Song of Solomon, but I always recommend it to newlyweds. Genesis 38 is terrible. Genesis 38 is akin to the chapter in the book of Judges where a man is told to cut up his daughter in 12 pieces and send it to the 12 tribes of Israel. And you listen to that and go, what is in this book? And the answer is you should read it someday and find out. Genesis 38 starts out with Judah, the one who would be the king tribe, where Christ himself would come in lineage. Judah goes down to the Adulamite, Hira. And in going down to the Adulamite, he is introduced, by the way, it's a house of uh, whoredoms, a house of prostitution. He's introduced to a woman named Shua. By the way, Genesis 38 happens after Joseph is sold. The guilt complex on Judah, the one who recommended Joseph be sold into slavery, is so eating at him and so gnawing at him that he goes down to live in a pernicious way, in a way that would not please God and didn't make his daddy Jacob happy. But look, his dad had left him long ago. His dad didn't care about him. In doing so, he marries Shua. Shua produces three children for him. And it seems that she understands the guilt that is in his heart about selling his brother and lying to his dad. Here's what she names their three kids. Er, Onan, and Shelah. And you say, okay, that's very revelatory. Thank you, Kyle. I I appreciate that. Yes, their names in the original language literally could be strung together to say this. The watcher strengthens, then he breaks. She's literally saying, hey, man, your lie is going to come to fruit. You're going to be found out. It's going, he's going to break you. The story gets even worse. Er and Onan are given to Tamar as for a wife. Er as the first husband, he dies. Then Onan, as the rightful heir to his brother's oldest brother's name, is given to Tamar, and he dies. Judah will not fulfill the obligation of committing Shelah, the youngest son, to her. In fact, he blames Tamar for killing the other two. And in the process of time, she plays the whore and tricks him, has a child by him. He won't pay for the child. And in the end, she brings his signet to him and he says, you're more righteous than me. What a disaster. Some of you are thinking, that's all in Genesis 38. Sure is. Every word of it. And yet I would look at many a Christian home, and as a pastor, knowing that I too am raising children, so I'm not above the law, I would simply put the warning out, don't have a finish like Jacob. If you are failing moms and dads in your relationship to God, get it right because your kids see it. They know. They're not stupid. If you failed in your relationships to your children... Seek their forgiveness. Young people, if your parents are failures, and by the way, be very careful labeling your parents as failures, but if they are in your eyes, and by the word of God they are, then you need to forgive them and live like Joseph above that problem. 
But I warn our families, in life we experience relational failure. It's everywhere. Thankfully, in closing this morning, in the Lord we experience righteous favor. Whatever can be said about Jacob, and clearly you can tell I could go on and on if I'd like to, but I'm conscious of your time. It is clear that God favored him. Why? The guy was a loser. It seems. Why would God love him at all? Why would God care about him at all? And the answer is because because God chose to love him. Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. Those are recorded in Scripture. Can't run from them. They're true. So it leads us to letter A, God called him. In the Lord, or in His presence, we experience His favor, but it only comes through that call. This is the most probably interesting fact of Jacob's life. From his conception, God had called him to the birthright. And seemingly his whole life he fought this call. He sounds like many a believer today. I'm so glad to be saved, but I'm not real happy about being a Christian. I mean, I love Jesus and I'm glad Jesus loves me, but Jesus better love me for who I am, not who he wants me to be. That's generally the statement today. Say, well, that seems kind of brash. Well, go and look at your life and prove whether my statement is true or yours, which is Jesus just loves me how I am. God has called us to be different. Come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord. Be ye holy, for I am holy, saith the Lord. There is no way around it in Scripture. God wants you to be different than this world. His righteous favor, His blessing, His grace rests upon us, as it did in Jacob, sometimes inexplicable to us. Why does He even love me? I don't know. But He does. I can tell you this as well in closing. God does want the best life for you. God never intended for this to be Jacob's end. He never wrote this and said, hey, this is what I want for you, Jacob. God always knew this would be the finish of Jacob because he has omniscience. But God did not design for Jacob to have such a terrible end with such disaster, with such deception. It's not God's design at all. It's what sin does to us. God's favor comes in our salvation. God's favor continues through the call for us to be separated and sanctified. And God's favor culminates when He calls us home to glory, either by way of the grave, which is merely a stepping stone, or by way of the rapture, where He will say to the believer, come up hither. It's still a call. There is a constant call upon our lives, just like Jacob. Like Jacob and the Lord, we experience God's righteous favor in His call, but let her be in finally this morning in God's correction. God corrects him. Um, you might lose me here at the very end. You had me all the way up to the end, and then you didn't seal the deal. Well, stay with me and understand this. Forty years, Jacob thought Joseph was dead. And in Genesis 46 and verse 30... It's revealed to him that Jacob is alive. By the way, how hard was it for those boys to confess their lie? It was hard enough for them to confront Joseph, as we'll see when we get to Joseph's life. But boy, it was really hard to go back home and go, Hey, Dad, guess what? Surprise! That lion that ate him 40 years ago spit him right back out. He's healthy. He made his way to Israel or Egypt. He didn't come back home. He made it all the way to Egypt. He thought that was a better idea. I mean, they had to own up to their lie. No, you know what? We lied to you. Oh, the correction in the liar's life. The supplanter, the deceiver, Jacob himself has the ultimate correction from Almighty God. God's correction sometimes comes with the highest cost. But the correction, my friend, is always good. Here's what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 12 and verse 5. And ye have forgotten the exhortation, which speaketh unto you as unto children, my son. Despise not the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. Jacob in Genesis 37 grieves for his young son, His son is lost to him. God's corrective measures have weighed heavily. The consequences, it seems, are too great to bear. He recognizes the change that is needed. 
And we find these sad words in Genesis 37, 34, and 35. Verse 34 tells us that Jacob wore many days. In verse 35 it says, And all his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him. What a statement. Those sons were trying to comfort him while they were lying to him. This was part of the correction of God in Jacob's life. And he said, excuse me, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, for I will go down into the grave mourning my son. Thus his father wept for him. God's correction, as we have studied, continued with family treachery, family embarrassment, and a sizable family emergency, a famine to their flock as shepherds. Correction, my friend, is God's favor upon us. It is a blessing. It allows us to see God, and it allows us to see our error, and it allows us to see His plans and purposes for us. Jacob often felt the correcting hand of Almighty God, which is the evidence of God's righteous favor active in his life. So we close our thoughts on Jacob. Jacob's walk with God can be set in four understandable divisions as we have done in these messages. His formation was with parental chaos between Isaac and Rachel and in his own personal choices. His fight began with the call from God, which led to the consecration of his own life or committal to God, which gave him a cause to fight for God. His faith was principally a saving faith that was the product of God's sovereign grace and was evident practiced in his life daily or should have been. Because of his failure in the practicing of sanctifying faith, his finish was full of relational failures, needing correction with certainly consequences. But his finish in the Lord, as odd as it may seem to us and undeserved, was full of God's favor and grace. This morning, maybe you're here. And the verse from Psalm 81 is true for you. Oh, hearken to my voice. Walk in my ways. The lesson that we can learn from Jacob's walk with God is that his finish was terrible. Yours doesn't have to be. Correct your failures while there is time. Father, help us, I pray.